0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. I know that some of you men are worried about those um, pot roasts in the crock pot and the ribs that you're planning on putting on the grill today. And there are a couple of guys who are saying, ah, I knew I forgot something. But. I just want to encourage you to stay for Sunday school and to uh, hear the presentation on what your missionaries are doing around the world so that you'll be able to better pray for them. So I just encourage you to stay for that. Please at this time, turn with me in God's holy word to the gospel of John. The gospel of John, we're going to be looking at the first 15 verses of chapter 4. It's a strange place to, uh, to be breaking off. If we're, we're breaking off in the middle of 15 verses, I know, but you know, you have to pick the part that you, you have to pick the portion that you know you can do. It's also a little awkward trying to figure out the end at verse 14, the end at verse 15. We won't worry about any of those things. Let's hear God's holy word. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you. We thank you for the opportunity to lift up your praise on our lips through our singing. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to have lifted up your holy name in our petitions and prayers to you. And we thank you most of all, Father, that by your grace, as we come to you in worship, it is not our voice alone that speaks. But it is your voice that addresses us from the very throne. And therefore, Father, we thank you that by your grace we have heard your voice in this, your word. We pray now that your spirit, the same spirit which Jesus promised and held out to this woman, that same spirit would work in us right now to apply your word to our hearts and minds and build us up in our faith and knowledge of him. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we traveled over to the farmer's market yesterday, I saw many sorts of homes. While there were older subdivisions with mature trees, there were a lot of new subdivisions with no trees. And along the road, there were the homes from time past. Old, old, old trailer homes. Many of which gave the appearance of difficult times. Maybe I was thinking of the celebration of Mother's Day and the long lines of people buying beautiful bouquets of roses, snapdragons, and Gerbera daisies at the farmer's market. I know you're all surprised that I would know that last one. But but I couldn't help but notice some very run-down trailers with the bicycles of small children outside. And I couldn't help but think about mothers who have had very, very difficult lives. All of us have made some bad choices. Sometimes we felt like there was no good choice to make or that others made bad choices for us. People have suggested a lot of things about the Samaritan woman. They have suggested those things based on the fact that she was married five times and was living with a man unmarried when Jesus met her. They have suggested those things because she was getting water from the well at noon rather than early in the morning before breakfast is started or in the evening just before dinner. We don't know anything more than the text tells us. We know that she was a truthful woman. She didn't lie about being married when she wasn't married. We also know that her word was good enough so that when she went back to the village and began telling them about this man that she met, people believed what she said, and they went out to the well to meet Jesus. So that's saying something. We also know that she had some significant respect for Jacob. We also know that she counted herself as a descendant of God's people because she calls him our Jacob our father. And that she had a knowledge of the prophet... Like Moses, that had been promised in the Pentateuch. We also know she was living in sin. On the other hand, we don't know why she had been married five times. We also don't know why she needed water in the middle of the day. Was she avoiding the company of others? We don't know. Was her life the result of bad choices or because she thought that it was what she had to do in order to survive? We don't know. We don't even know her name. What we do know is that she needed salvation through Jesus Christ. And that of all the Gentiles that Jesus might have held the gospel to out to the, for the first time, she was the person who Jesus extended the hope of the gospel too. In these verses, we find that it is Jesus who first takes the gospel to the Gentiles by offering living water to the Samaritan woman at the well. And in these verses, I would like us to see Jesus' need and the woman's need. There are obvious things that we need. In some ways, they may seem superficial because we need them over and over and over and over again. Things like food, drink, clothing, safety, rest, and love. But while it may not be as obvious, there are other things that we need that are even more important than those things. Eternally important. Like a right relationship with God. In this passage, Jesus needs to get out of Judea. He is also tired and he is thirsty. But he also has a greater need, a need that is pointed out in verse 34 of John chapter 4. He needs to do the will of the Father to accomplish the work that he was sent to do. That's what he needed. While the woman's need for water was so great that she would go out to pull up a bucket from a deep well in the middle of the day at noon, she has a far greater need. She needs to know that she is in the presence of the Messiah who offers her salvation and eternal life. The Gospel of John shows us from start to finish our need and how that need has been met by God in Jesus Christ. The Gospel begins in chapter 1 by telling us that the Word was with God and that the Word is God. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. It tells us that all things were made through Him and that all life comes from Him. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. It tells us that the word is the giver of light, verse 9 of chapter 1. It tells us that the word became flesh and lived among us. That same word that became flesh is the same word that created all things and gave life to all things. This gospel was probably written later than the other three, and that may be why its perspective is a bit different. It does share things found in the other gospels. Things but things that are found in Matthew, Mark and Luke are not found in John. And things that are found in John, and there are things found in John that aren't in Matthew, Mark and Luke. It isn't just the opening 18 verses that are different. For example, Matthew and Luke, as you all know, tell us something about Jesus' birth. They tell us about, his, Luke tells us something about his youth. Matthew and Luke are then joined by Mark to tell us about Jesus' baptism and the temptations by the devil in the wilderness. The three other gospels then move straight on to the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee after John the Baptist is arrested. In contrast, this gospel starts before the beginning of creation. It tells us that the, how the word became flesh and how John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. But he doesn't tell us about Jesus' early life. He doesn't tell us about Jesus' baptism. Isn't that interesting? Of all the gospel writers, the apostle John was the only one who was there. And he doesn't tell us about the baptism of Jesus. He doesn't tell us about the temptations in the wilderness. John picks up with the time skipped by the other Gospels. He begins with the time after the temptations in the wilderness when Jesus returns to the place where John is baptizing. He tells us about the challenges to John's authority and John's declaration that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He tells us about Jesus' first disciples before Jesus goes to Galilee and calls those fishermen to be fishers of men. He tells us about those disciples that Jesus... He tells us that those disciples before the first miracle... Called Jesus the Son of God, that they called him the Christ, that they called him the King of Israel, meaning the Eternal King. And he tells us that Jesus knew exactly who he himself is. Then John tells us about Jesus' first miracle in chapter 2. He tells us about Jesus' visit to his family after that first miracle. And then he tells us about going up to Jerusalem and cleaning out the temple of the buyers and sellers who were there. It's not the same cleansing of the temple that takes place at the end of his ministry. It's a different cleansing of the temple that takes place before his ministry in Galilee begins. And then beginning with John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, he tells us about Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, followed by John the Baptist declaring that like a best man, he was preparing for the bridegroom to come to his bride. And that now that Jesus has arrived, Jesus must increase and John the Baptist must decrease. It isn't the rest It isn't the arrest of Herod, by Herod, that ends John's ministry. It is the plan of God. And then we get to this passage. And it isn't until John chapter 4, verse 45, that the gospel of John begins telling us about Jesus early, the beginning of his public ministry in Galilee. In other words, that whole space between the temptation in the wilderness to the beginning of the public ministry in Galilee, that space that is skipped over by the other three Gospels, the Gospel of John fills us in on what all happens during that time. They had gone straight from the temptation to the beginning of the public ministry. John has told us what happened in between those two things. And in that telling, we find that the groundwork for everything that is going to transpire in the public ministries in Galilee and Judea are laid out. The groundwork is laid out for everything that's going to happen afterward. From a spiritual perspective, this gospel answers the objections of those who think that after the resurrection and ascension, the apostles of Jesus have become innovative, that they have started something new, that they have broken with Jesus and broken with the traditions of the past. It answers the objections of those who think that Jesus must be understood in the greater context of Moses and the prophets. Those earliest disciples recognized that he is the Son of God, Messiah, and King of Israel before his first miracle. Read John chapter 1 verses 19 through 51. Before the first miracle, they are calling him the Son of God. The Christ, the eternal king of Israel. It is Jesus who called himself the house and temple of God first. It is Jesus who made it clear that the faith that is produced by being born again is more important than the observation of the Mosaic law. It is Jesus' ministry that drew greater crowds and overshadowed John's and shows us that the Christian baptism introduced and given to the church after Christ's resurrection isn't founded on John's work, but founded on Christ's work. And here, it is Jesus, not the apostles. It is Jesus who first called Gentiles to believe to believe. Without first making them become Jews. From a literary perspective, the passage before us rounds out the events that took place between Jesus emerging from the temptation in the wilderness in 119 and the beginning of his public ministry in Galilee in 445. But I can't emphasize it enough. The most significant thing about this passage is that we see that it is Jesus who first holds out salvation to the Gentiles. Before the book of Acts, where the apostles will be told to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Before Jesus heals a Samaritan leper who alone of ten returns to thank him. Before Jesus begins his public ministry in Galilee, Jesus proclaims the gospel in Samaria and is declared I want you to look at verse 42. You have your Bible open. Look at verse 42. Those Samaritans who believed. They don't declare him to be the savior of the Jews. They declare him to be the savior of the whole world. It is Jesus therefore. Not innovative apostles. It is Jesus who first takes the gospel to non-Jewish Samaritans. Jesus' need, verses 1 through 10. John chapter 3 concluded with Jesus' disciples and John the Baptist baptizing in the same area. John, as we know from chapter 1, had attracted negative attention from the Pharisees. They wanted to know who gave him the authority for his ministry. Now, as more people begin going to Jesus to be baptized rather than to John, Jesus learned that the attention of the Pharisees had shifted to him. While John's answer to the Pharisees had deflected attention to the one for whose coming John was preparing, Jesus had already attracted a lot of attention when he was in Jerusalem. In John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, when he drove out the buyers and the sellers, overturning their tables and teaching there. So Jesus leaves Judea to go to Galilee, where he was from, where he had been previously attended, attended a wedding at Cana, and where he had visited his family in chapter 2, 1 through 12. Jesus could have taken the long way around. But going through Samaria was the shortest and fastest route to get from Judea to Galilee. We are told that he came to a village called Sychar near the land that Jacob had bought. We read about that in Genesis chapter 33, verse 19. A piece of land that Jacob gave to Joseph, his son, as an inheritance, according to Genesis forty eight, twenty-two a place where Joseph's bones were buried after Israel came out of the wilderness, according to Joshua 24, 32. And here we are told that there was a well dug by Jacob. We don't read about that well in the Old Testament, but the Gospel of John tells us it was there. John was t- Jesus was tired from the journey, so he sat by the well. It's funny reading reading church fathers and... Commentators on this passage they all want to say some want to say sat on the well some say sat on the ground who cares he sat by the well it was noon the sixth hour of the day is noon the sun is at its zenith and it's at the highest point a woman of Samaria came to draw water and so Jesus asked her for a drink the disciples weren't there because we're told that they were off in the village buying some food the woman wonders what Jesus... Why what the, he, She wonders at the fact that Jesus would even ask her. Why? Samaritans were a very mixed race. According to 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 and following, when the Assyrians conquered Israel, this was a typical Assyrian practice. When they conquered a people, they took you out of your land and put you someplace else, and then they took another conquered people... ...and moved them into the place where you had been living. They did that because in their view... ...your power, your strength was tied to your God... ...and your God was tied to the land. And therefore, if they separated you from your land... ...they were separating you from your God... ...and therefore, it made you weaker in their view. That's just how they viewed life. And so when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom... ...they moved the Israelites out... And they moved the people of Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Shephar into this place where Israel had once lived in the northern kingdom. We are told that these people did not worship Israel's God. Second Kings is very explicit on the matter. However, lions began to attack the people and the Assyrians in their way of thinking thought that the lions are attacking these people because they're not worshiping the God of the land. Therefore, we need to take some Israelite priests, send them over there, and teach these people how to worship the God of the land. And that's what they did. Second Kings chapter 17, verse 29 tells us that they worshiped the gods of their own peoples where they had come from, And they feared the Lord of Israel. They created their own worship places. They anointed their own priests. They started their own feast days. They had their own religion. A mixture of the old, where they had come from, and a mixture of what they had learned from these Israelite priests. We know from the book of Ezra that after the Babylonian exile, that these Samaritans offered to help Israel rebuild the temple. But they were turned down because of their mixed religion. And that created animosity. And so then they tried to stop the rebuilding of the temple. In 400 BC, we know historically that they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And we know historically that in 128 BC, the high priest in Jerusalem had the Israelites burn down the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. In Jesus' day, the Samaritans used only five books from the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. They were despised by the Jews, and in John chapter 8, 48, in a bit of name-calling... People call Jesus a Samaritan. In other words, this was a real cut. Call Jesus a Samaritan. And so, you know, if one of your siblings calls you a Samaritan today, you say, I am very grateful to the Lord to be identified with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Therefore, this woman is a bit incredulous that a Jew would risk ceremonial contamination By asking a Samaritan to give him a drink from something she had touched. That's the issue. The water's not the issue. The water is he's asking for a drink from something she's touched. Since she would be considered ceremonially unclean, she would thereby, in the Jewish view, be making him ceremonially unclean. But as we know, Jesus had no care about that. The contamination didn't go from others to him. The holiness and cleansing went from him to them. Jesus ignores her question about why a Jew, he as a Jew, would ask her for some water. And he tells her that if she knew the gift of God and who it is that is asking her for, her for a drink, that she instead would be asking him to give her living water. Jesus is tired. We're told that. Jesus is thirsty. But his real need isn't for rest and water. His real need is to do the will of the Father by offering eternal life to all mankind, Jew and Gentile alike. His offer of living water is the vocabulary of flowing water, like a spring fed well. But his meaning is far deeper. While he has a need, he has not come to receive anything from her. He has come to give. And what he is offering to give is far more than she could have ever imagined. The woman's need. Verses 11 through 15. He told her if she knew the gift of God and who was asking her, that she would ask him for living water. And by the end of these verses, verse 15, she's asking. She doesn't understand at that point who it is that's asking her. She doesn't understand by that point what the gift of God is. But he told her that she would be asking in verse 10 and in verse 15 she's going to be asking. Like Nicodemus in chapter 3 who could not understand Jesus words beyond their physical meaning. This woman is still thinking of physical things. Jesus offers a spring a spring Jesus offer of spring water seems ridiculous. After all he doesn't even have anything to draw from the well, let alone to dig a new well. So where is he going to get the water? Jacob, who she calls our father, thereby identifying herself not only with the Jews, but also with the ancestor of Jesus, gave them this deeply dug well. It served the sons of Israel and their livestock. Does Jesus think that he is greater than Jacob? He has nothing to draw water with, as I already said, let alone dig with. Like her previous question, Jesus ignores the issues she raises. What he offers is so superior to this water that there's no comparison. Everyone who drinks this water, he says, will be thirsty again. Jesus, however, offers water that will not only make the person drinking it never thirsty again, it will become in that person like a bubbling fountain of eternal life. Because she doesn't yet know who he is, she doesn't yet understand what he's offering. No doubt she's begun to understand that he is offering something miraculous but her request is still in the realm of the material. She's looking for relief from being thirsty. She's looking for relief from having to return to this well. Jesus is offering eternal life. Jesus will go on to confront this woman regarding her sin and draw her into the understanding that he is the Messiah. And while we never learn whether Jesus received a drink of water from her, I think that's so ironic. At the end of this conversation, when the disciples come back, she leaves her pitcher there and she takes off for the village. We don't even know if Jesus ever got a drink. But we can be sure of this that she and many others in that village will receive eternal life from Jesus. Jesus needed something, and she needed something. What we need to remember is that even if she had been a faithfully worshiping, lawfully married woman, she would have still needed the living water that Jesus was holding out to her. That she was five times divorced, living in sin and part of a confused mixed religion, and that Jesus held out to her eternal life is our greatest hope. Not because we're better than her, but because we're in just as much of a need as her. Because if there was hope for salvation for her, then you and me will be satisfied as well. You and I. Nice house or broken and battered trailer. One husband or five. Living in faithfulness or in sinful sexual relationships. Jesus offers you living water. He came not to be the savior of the Jews only. But the Savior of the whole world. And what He offers is not simply life, but abundant life. Life eternal. Life that overflows. No, we sometimes forget and get stuck on the food, the drink, the clothing, the rest. The safety and the love. The things that come and go. The things we get and lose. The things we want the next day. But through the work of his spirit, Jesus offers something eternal. Something that is more than we can imagine. Do we have to understand that he is the eternal son of God? The Christ, the king? Yes. Do we have to come to grips with our sinful condition and find forgiveness and transformation in him? Yes. But does he offer living water, salvation, eternal life to you where you are right now? Yes, yes, yes. Come to him and you will never, ever thirst again. Come to him and you will find eternal life, overflowing. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for Jesus. We thank you for the only God and Savior, the Christ who came to be the Savior of the world. Not of the righteous, but of sinners lost in darkness, sin, and confusion hopelessly placing their confidence, their trust, and their hopes in the things that pass away day after day after day. Father, by your grace, we thank you for the mercy of Jesus Christ and the life everlasting that comes alone from him. We thank you for the salvation that he holds out to us even now. Not scared, stagnant life, but overflowing, bubbling, living, eternal life. Father, we thank you for Jesus who has saved us and rescued us from all the sin and the lostness and the hopelessness in our lives. We thank you for Jesus, our light and our life. And pray that by your grace, that wherever we are at, that we would know Jesus and ask and receive from him living water, eternal life. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.